said is certainly connected to uh, what we'll be thinking about this morning, but in a way this one simple passage is the heart of what we want to share. A few weeks ago I was privileged to preach again and tried to show from the scriptures and from Jesus' teaching directly especially that there are ultimately only two ways to live and that there are ultimately only two eternal destinies for every human being. Every one of us in the room is headed either to the glories and unmatchable happinesses of heaven or to the horrors of everlasting judgment in hell. And it was Jesus himself who made it that stark and made it that clear. And so I got to thinking, knowing that I was going to be able to share with the whole congregation again this morning, and then especially knowing that a number of people, a number including from this church, would have gone to the Ravi Zacharias special event, Ask Anything, and there also hear the uh, claims of Christ and the claims of Christianity presented, I thought, I want to take one time with the whole congregation in a very specific way and address that crucial question. What must I do to be saved? I've come now from different ways to understand that my eternal destiny might be in question. I've started to understand the uh, claims of Christ and the Zachariah event, the Ravi Zacharias event kind of spoke to me. So what do I need to do? What's the next step? And the Bible, that question is asked is different way. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The people on the day of Pentecost hear Peter's preaching and they're cut to the heart and they ask, what should we do, brothers? And then, of course, the Philippian jailer and the turmoil of what happened with the earthquake and everything else, they've, arra uh, they've arrested these preachers. They've been singing praises all night. The, uh, the earthquake happens. They realize something enormous and transcendent is happening. And so they rush in and they ask Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Because I know that in the course of things, even when you come to a good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church like this, most of the time our teaching is sort of aimed at Christians unfolding the Bible teaching about how to live the Christian life and how to live as a believer once you've come to Christ. And so I thought it may be worthwhile to just focus as best I can on the basic realities but how do I come to Christ in the first place? What must I do to be saved? No one message can cover all of this fully. And so, you know, you have to keep coming to hear the Word of God. You have to keep coming to hear the Gospel in whatever ways that you can come to have it addressed to your heart and soul. But I wanted to try to hit some crucial things at least. And so, in this passage in Acts chapter 2, as Paul, the great evangelist himself, who's won and would win so many more to Christ and who would plant churches, when he summarizes his ministry of the gospel, 
of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ so that people could be saved. He says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, I have declared, literally I've delivered my testimony, I've testified to both Jews and Greeks, and that's his way of saying everybody, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And so the answer fundamentally to the question, what must I do to be saved, is I must repent and I must believe. Later, we'll see that repenting and believing means the beginning of starting to follow Christ. That's why one of the ways that he often put it, including to Peter, after the resurrection, when he was going to leave and go to heaven so Peter could no longer follow him physically like he had done for three years. But Jesus would still say to Peter in kind of his recommissioning and his renewing, follow me. What must I do to be saved? I must repent. I must believe. Put my faith in Jesus Christ. And I must decide to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of it. And that's what I want to try to unfold and explain kind of what each one of those words and those crucial ideas really do mean. First of all, when we ask the question, what must I do to be saved? It implies, well, we don't have a lot, we won't take the time in a way to focus on, but that implies, that means that until you get saved, you're lost. Until there's a time when you're, as Jesus says, you must be born again. And he said it to a religious, respectable, devout, observant, kind, good person. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again or you'll never see, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, however we kind of hide it, however we kind of dress it up, we are at enmity with God, allergic to him, not a God of our own making, not a spirituality we've custom designed a la carte, that's okay with us. But God as he actually is, the Bible says, we're not really, apart from the Spirit's work, seeking. We're running away, we're hiding, and we're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And so this message is for those who by the grace of the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God who's come to you, however it's gotten into your heart and life so far, has led you to the place where you realize your lostness and in your deepest moments, you know that's true, just like I did, just like every Christian here did, leads you to the place where the main question that really truly matters to you as it should is, what must I do then to be saved, to get back right with God? Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark chapter 1. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 24. And repentance 
For the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. The verse that we just read from Acts 20, where Paul summarizes his ministry, Jesus says that not only must we believe and repent, we must become a follower of his. Remember again the words of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus, as we've said before, is saying, I'm Lord of everybody everywhere. Therefore, because that's true, go and make disciples of all the nations. And a disciple was a learner who lived by the teaching of his master. Jesus says, I'm everybody's Lord and master now. They need to recognize and respond to that reality. So go and turn everybody into learners who live by everything that I teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And so the outline is, I hope, simple too. First of all, the necessity of repentance. Secondly, the nature of it. What is it? What does it mean to repent? And then to think together, well, how does it happen in a person's heart and life? And I start with necessity, that it's necessary, because even among some very well-intentioned people, repentance seems to be kind of left out of what it means to truly get saved and come back to God, even though it fills the pages of the New Testament. Or it gets defined in such a way that it's drained of so much of its full and rich biblical meaning. And so first of all, we think about the necessity of repentance. It's necessary I hope as we'll go through, you'll see how could a person turn to God if that person didn't also turn from a life without God? That's really what repentance is. Jesus himself taught in Luke chapter 13, 5. He put it in pretty stark terms. You must repent or you'll perish. Perish, same word used in our favorite Bible verse, John 3, 16. And then again, I mentioned in Acts chapter 2, Peter, this is the first sermon of the early church in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's a sermon as it should be about the person and work of Jesus, because it all comes down to him. And at the climax of that sermon, Jesus, I mean, Peter makes this declaration, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. Now again, think of what's going on. He's addressing mainly the religious leaders who got it so wrong about who Jesus was, who thought so wrongly about him, were so profoundly mistaken about who Jesus was, that even though he was God's son, the long-awaited Messiah, they killed him. You couldn't be more wrong about who Jesus is and how you should relate to him. You ought to have worshipped him. You crucified him. That's what's going on. No wonder they're cut to the heart. No wonder they're convicted. And they say, not in some pious reflection, they say, brothers, what should we do now? Given the predicament we're in, now what? And that's when Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. What sins? Kicking the dog? 
No, rejecting Christ, the primary one. You need to profoundly repent, which in this case clearly means you need to profoundly rethink who Jesus is and what is the nature of a right way of relating to him. The necessity of repentance. Paul says in Acts 17, in the past God overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Do you know, unsaved friend here this morning, that it's a standing order from heaven for you to repent? He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he's given proof that this is going to happen to everyone by raising him from the dead. You one day, fanciful as it might sound as you sit here this morning, you one day will stand in front of this Jesus that I'm proclaiming. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise about coming back, about coming back in judgment and glory. It's like, well, it's been 2,000 years. It had been just a few decades in Peter's time, and it seems slow according to their misunderstanding of how it was going to play out. Peter says, no, that's not what's going on. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise to return. Here's what's going on. He's being patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish. But what's the only alternative? But everyone to, to come to repentance. And then Acts chapter 26, verse 20. First to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and all Judea, then to the Gentiles. And there again, that's Paul's way of saying, in other words, to everybody, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate, show their repentance by their deeds. Because when you really, truly repent, when you really, truly, profoundly rethink all of this, centering in the person and work of Jesus, it will inevitably change the way you live. Your repentance will inevitably be manifested by your deeds. If the deeds don't show up, it's the sign you've not really profoundly changed your mind yet. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Savior. It's because of this biblical teaching about the necessity of repentance that the great evangelist, Billy Graham, and I thought, well, if I'm going to talk a gospel message and if I'm going to talk about repentance and getting saved, what better non-biblical authority, but someone teaching the Bible than someone like Billy Graham. And he writes, there is not one verse of Scripture that indicates you can be a Christian and live any kind of life you want to. When Christ truly enters the human heart, he demands that he be Lord and Master. He demands complete surrender. He must have first place in everything you do or think or say, for when you truly repent, you turn toward God in everything. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. You cannot have genuine repentance without saving faith. And that's a crucial point. 
And you cannot have saving faith without repentance. Dr. Graham's language about turning from sin, from to, echoes what the Apostle Paul wrote about the conversions of the believers in Thessalonica. You turned to God, that's really the faith, the trusting part, you turn to God from idols to, from now on, serve the living and true God. The turning from the idols, the turning from life with God left out, that is the true God fully loved and devoted to, although we don't do it perfectly, but I mean sincerely, you turn from life without God, and you turn to God to serve him. It's the word to be his doulos, to be his slave, his servant in every sphere of life from now on. That's how the Apostle Paul described the repentance and faith of the Thessalonians, even though he didn't use either one of the words specifically. Charles Spurgeon led thousands of people to Christ through his pastoral ministry in London. And he insisted on the same truth in a little book that he wrote to help people find the way to salvation called All of Grace. He said, Repentance and forgiveness are joined together in the experience of all believers. There never was a person yet who did unfeignedly, that is, sincerely repent of sin with believing repentance who was not forgiven. That's the glorious promise. And on the other hand, there never was a person forgiven who had not repented of his sin. Acts 5, Peter says, Christ is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're the witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When someone really repents, they receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit to come into their life to lead them to live that new life. That's what Peter said about the people of Israel, but later in the book of Acts, when Peter reports the conversion of Cornelius and his household, and the whole church is listening in, it says, they praise God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, I hope this is clear. Repentance and faith both are necessary. There are two sides in one sense of the same coin, the same transaction. It's a turning from, it's a turning to. If you're really going to be converted. Another word. It means changed. If you took your van in and you said, I want a conversion van, and your van came out exactly the way it was before you took it in, you don't have a conversion van. So conversion means a change has happened. A change of mind, thought, belief in the profoundest ways. In fact, that leads to the next. What does it really mean to repent? Change your mind. Change your mind about what? The things that matter the most. You change your whole mind about God and about Jesus Christ and about what his cross was all about. 
and about the fact that he was raised from the dead. You change your mind profoundly about yourself and about your sin and about your arm's length distancing of yourself from God your whole life. Everything, in that sense, changes in profound ways. You change your mind when it comes to how you think you could ever be right with God. Sometimes we finally start to be interested in religion and we think, well, I'll become very observant and I'll try to keep the commandments and I'll try to do better and that's how I'll get right with God. No, you need to repent of that too. You need to realize that because of the depths of our sin and fallenness and lostness and inability, the only way to be forgiven and to be made right with God is through the cross work of Jesus Christ, where he became our substitute and he became our sacrifice, who took the wrath that we deserved, who paid the price we could never pay, so that we say, in Christ alone, I trust for my forgiveness and my salvation. Sometimes the thing we need to repent, change our mind of most, is about how it is that we come to be right with God. And that's the whole meaning and message of the cross where God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when you truly repent, you will trust in Christ alone as Savior. And this message, as I said, we can't cover everything in one 40-minute time. So I'm not saying this morning as much about faith and trust because that's maybe what we hear more often. I'm saying more this morning about the repentance that's the turning from because that's a message that evangelical Christianity today has largely muted. Jesus offers the Ninevites as exhibit A of an example of repentance. And this was very helpful to me because, and I'm going to quote some other human authors because I think other faithful Bible teachers who study the Word of God prayerfully and deeply, they should be listened to. They're, in a way, pastors to the church, just like your local pastor is. So I'll quote these other faithful Bible teachers about the meaning of repentance. But what really cinched it for me was when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now how does that help? Now I've got a Jesus-certified definition of what repenting is, don't I? Where am I going to find out what the Ninevites did? In the book of Jonah. And if you go to Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, Jonah preaches, and it's a stern message, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And it says in verse 5, the Ninevites believed God when he said that through the preaching of Jonah. They changed their mind profoundly about their situation and circumstance. And then there were all kinds of fruits of that repentance. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, and kings then had absolute authority. So for this to happen when you're a king, he 
rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Don't let them drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. That, Jesus says, that's what repenting is. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. That's always the alternative. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Repenting is a turning to, yes, but it's a turning from also. Billy Graham again, to repent means a great deal more than just regretting and feeling sorry about sin. The biblical word repent means to change, to turn. It's a word of power and action. It's a word that signifies a complete revolution in the individual. When the Bible calls upon us to repent of sin, it means that we should turn away from sin, that we should do an about-face and walk in the opposite direction from sin and all that it implies. True repentance means to change, to turn away from, and to go in a new direction. The New Bible Dictionary, repentance consists in a radical transformation of thought, attitude, outlook, and direction. Repentance is a turning from sin unto God and His service. It's the beginning of leading a new life, of loving God, of knowing God, of obeying all things that Christ commands. It awakens joyous obedience for a life according to God's will. And then one of my favorite Bible teachers, J.I. Packer, the New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived dif differently. You know, sometimes people say, yeah, repentance, all it means is change your mind. I agree halfway. It means change your mind, but it means change your mind profoundly about everything. <laughs> when you've really, really profoundly changed your mind, it will change your direction, naturally and necessarily. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly, mind and judgment. The Ninevites show that. That was a heavy-duty change of mind that happened there in Nineveh. Will and affections, behavior and lifestyle, motives and purposes are all involved. Repenting means starting to live a new life. Another way of saying it is that when a person truly repents, he or she is deciding to become a disciple, a faithful follower who learns and lives by all the teachings of Christ. The motto of South is glorifying the God of heaven by making disciples here on earth. Don't drain the word disciple of its biblical meaning. It's a learner who lives by everything Christ commands. 
Remember again Acts 11.26. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In other words, what you say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a disciple, but I'm a Christian. They're the same thing in the Bible. A faithful follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible says it in different ways, even when it doesn't use the words. That was the point of the scripture reading this morning. From Ephesians chapter 4, read it again sometime this Lord's Day, and you'll see Paul expects a very different life now because they've come to Christ. Romans 6, 17, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. It's what Paul calls the obedience of faith at the beginning and the end of that great letter. And then again, Romans 10, 9, when you get to the place that you've heard the gospel and the word of God, you get to the place where you now truly have rethought it profoundly so that you confess, that is, you seriously declare and mean it from your heart and mind, Jesus, now you're going to rightly identify him, Jesus is Lord believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which signaled his lordship. When you come to that place, you will be saved. Romans 10 promises us. What it means then to follow Christ isn't left vague and undefined by the New Testament. It means to live by the word of Christ the teaching of Christ as it touches every area of my life in the power of the Spirit in fellowship with His church. When a person has really repented and become a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what it looks like. There's so much more that I just don't have time for this morning, but I do want to just touch on how it is that this happens. The Bible says faith, a right response to God, comes by the word of Christ, by the message of Christ, rightly responding to God's word, to the gospel. That's how faith, that's how repentance is generated in a human heart. That's how it happened in my mind and heart. That's how it happened in every mind and heart of every true repentant believer who's here today. The gospel got to you. Who knows how it got to you? For me, it was a strange, uh, that film about the distant thunder and, and a thief in the night. That got me to kind of fearing God. It was going to camp meeting and hearing preaching in between softball games about the gospel and getting saved and getting right with God. It was reading Billy Graham's Peace with God and then seeing his appeals on television. It was going to church Sunday by Sunday and little by little, more and more, it dawned on me. It was breaking into my understanding. Jesus is the Lord who saves. I'm lost and I know it. His cross is the way to salvation, but I've got to bow the knee. I've been a rebel against him, polite, respectable looking rebel, but rebel nevertheless. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, it all culminates in the, what our, one of our favorite gospel songs says. That hour, I first believed. What must you do to be saved? You need to repent 
of your sin, your life without God, against God, and you need to turn to God in Christ, trusting in Christ alone for your forgiveness. And then with the help of the Holy Spirit, you decide, in the words of that song, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Because think about it, how does the Bible describe the ongoing Christian life? If the initial repentance is a profound change of mind, what's growth of the Christian life, according to Paul in Romans 12? Be transformed by the ongoing renewing of your mind, by the same means. A follower of Jesus Christ, they don't, whoo, got saved, now I'm done. It's like, whoo, got saved, now I've just started. Now in every aspect of my life, I am going to gladly, proactively, and intentionally follow Jesus Christ. That is, I'm going to learn his word, and then I'm going to live by it. I'm going to be diligent and proactive about learning from it, which is at the heart of what goes on in our gatherings of the church, and I'm going to be diligent and proactive about living by it as well. That's what it means to really, truly repent, believe, and to begin to follow Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be saved. So what will you do? If you're already a Christian here this morning, I was hoping that this message would encourage you, including encouraging, you know, I've got to do more evangelism. I've got to do more gospel telling and evangelizing and witnessing to my friends who are lost so that they can be saved. And I hope that in a way this and the sermon guide that's filled with the content that we tried to share today, that this could be an equipping tool for you. But if you're here this morning and you don't know if you're right with God or you're pretty sure you're not, I wanted one of your pastors to say what every one of your pastors would say to you. You really need to repent and believe. One more thing. Now what? We'll sing in a moment. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. Can I ask you, if that's not true of you, don't sing the lyric. You know, in general, we should never sing a lyric that's not true of us. It just kind of ingrains us in a sort of hypocrisy and pretending. Dear friend, if you've not decided to follow Jesus, then don't sing it. But I pray you'll start to do it. You could come as the song is sung, and I or someone of the prayer, we would talk to you. The coming down the aisle, though, the gesture of decision, isn't the decision itself. The decision is to repent and believe. But if this morning, in response to this, maybe as a climax of so much that God has been doing in your mind and heart, you are at that place of decision, then I would encourage you to, in some way, let others know about that response. My cell phone number is 896-9472. Call me and tell me, Pastor... I repented, and I believe. I put my trust in Christ. Or, Pastor, I'm just not sure yet, but it means a lot to me right now, and I don't want it to get away. Can I talk with you or call Pastor Ben or Nick or Neil or Keith 
or Don once he comes back. Talk to a Christian friend to either tell them, I have decided to follow Jesus. I've put my trust in him. Or I feel like I'm close. Help me now. Take that step that only you can take as the Holy Spirit works in your heart. I also, and it's listed in your uh, sermon guide, there's a great little book. It's only about 140 pages. You know, to be frank, if someone says, yeah, I was kind of interested, but oh, I had to read 100, forget it. That's not a good sign. That's a terrible sign. We're talking about your eternal soul. And I'm not saying this is the only tool, but this great little book, Basic Christianity by John Stott, is a great faithful guide about what it really means to come to Christ. Regularly, we do Christianity Explored, that study from the Gospel of Mark. That's the way too. Why? Because like I said, faith and repentance will only really ever blossom in your mind and heart. You know, I walked an aisle a bunch of times, down again, I wanted, and I had kind of gotten confused that the aisle walking itself would do it, that the throwing the stick in the fire itself would do it. Those things might express a decision, but the decision is what wells up in response to the truth, the gospel truth. In that sweet moment, when you've heard it, and now I believe, and I'm going to follow. That's what you must do to be saved. Father, I pray that you'll work in people's hearts and minds in these moments, the rest of this day, this week, Christians to be newly grateful for our salvation and newly concerned for those, including those right around us in the room who are lost. And Father, for those who are here still lost on that broad road to destruction, I hope we've been faithful in explaining to them what I must do to be saved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we sing, if you want to come now to talk some and to pray, or again, give me a call, or one of the pastors talk to a Christian friend, but respond if you need to respond to the offer and the invitation to salvation.